Mount Carmel. It was dark when our steamer came to anchor in the harbour of Haifa. We had the address of an Austrian hospice on Mount Carmel, and it was in this house we had hoped to stay. We hired a car at the harbour and were driven with terrifying rapidity around the bends of a steep mountain road. It was too dark to see anything beyond the lights of the town below. We were received at the hostel room by nuns and were shown in a fresh, clean room with a bed on each side of the window. We had our dinner at a long refectory table in the dining room. There were three English officials present, and opposite us, a young Syrian girl with very dark eyes. The Englishman imported to us information about the land with self-conscious, unimaginative energy. And where do you come from? one of them asked the native maiden. From Cana in Galilee, she said simply. Ah, is that so? exclaimed the healthy-faced doctor in surprise, showing by his tone that he was not entirely oblivious of the charm of the answer. After dinner we went out. Dark as it was, I was determined, if possible, to get on to the mountain. There was no moon, but the starshine was bright. We passed down a road that had been planted on both sides with pines and then branched off on the open hillside. As we walked, stumbling across the rocks and scrub until we reached a position where only the stars and the bare outlines of the mountain and the shadow of the sea were visible. We sat down with our backs to a rock. With my eight finger bones and two thumb bones pressing into the ground, I strained my imagination against the years. With suppressed emotion, I realised that I was actually present in the body on ground where the prophet had trod. All the romance and violence, all the poetry of the ancient story, drifted into my consciousness as though I were, in actual fact, close upon the footsteps of the obsessed holy man, with his cloak and staff and his wallet of parched barley. I saw his lean, hairy legs roped with sinew, his unnoticed, uncared-for feet with toes tipped with tough nails, his breathing chest, the withdrawn ferocity of the religious eye, willful, void of tolerance, God-drunken. I was glad that we had reached Haifa after dark. There seemed to be a privilege in the chance that my first wandering upon the mountain should be at night. With the mystery of the obscured earth around us, it was more easy to be rid of the human reckoning of time, and with a sequence of reality, link with one's own hour, this wild tribal rumour of the past. That night I omitted to draw the mosquito curtains about my bed, and in consequence was presently aware of innumerable small irritations, as though my flesh were being nipped by acorn-high fairies furnished with tweezers. Sandflies were biting me, but I did not know it. In the morning we went out for a walk. We followed a small path that ran eastward. We passed a number of Zionist bungalows with what looked like nursery gardens of little pine trees around them, all of which were withering, and most of them dead. The view was magnificent. The mountain stretched itself into Palestine like a sleeping beast. Above it was a cloudless sky of bright blue, and to the westward of it a waveless sea of bright blue. Along the coast to the northward I could make out the ladders of Tyre, a white chalk-like cliff which always reminded me of a bat's head. On this side of it was Acre, 
and between Acre and Haifa, a curving sickle bay along the beach of which General Gordon had walked on a certain early morning long ago. To the south I could see the white ridge of the Mediterranean breaking upon a low, straight coast with the ancient crusading castle of Athlet clearly outlined. Looking eastward I fancied I could detect the Lake of Galilee, but this, so I discovered afterward, was an illusion. Mount Hermon, uh, snow-capped and impressive, was always visible. After we walked several miles we sat and rested under a carob tree. From our position we could look down upon a secluded valley where some Arabs were camping. We watched every movement of the little tribe with absorbed interest. Their tents were black, as we, as were also the shadows under the bellies of three camels which stood patiently not far off. We saw a child run out across a dusty platform with its mother after it. The chickens, small as mites, scattered. A wind was blowing from the northeast so that, in spite of the sun, we kept cool. The mountain was grown over with wild mint, wild sage, thistle, knapweed, and burnethorn. We were again at the mountain at night. Jupiter was shining over Athlet, the north star over the ladders of Tyre, the fishers to the eastward over Carmel. The following morning we went to Haifa by a steep rocky path past fig trees and low crumbling walls. It was a short way and it made me think of going down into Stoke from off the frying pan end of Ham Hill. In the town I was completely absorbed in watching the camels. These were more like Somali camels, far larger than those I had seen at Messina. I was amazed by their lofty carriage as they paraded along the street, lifting their legs mechanically, their necks decorated with bead chains and coloured worsted and their fantastical pharaoh heads tufted with feathers. Their presumptuous manners compelled my constant heed. I continually examined them with admiration and wonder, their hairy, cunning upper lips, their slit nostrils, their weak, quivering lower lips, and their beautiful brown eyes. They are queer animals, but they are by no means devoid of their fantastic stateliness of their own. The testicles of the males protruded oddly behind their legs. It was difficult to imagine that the sophisticated temperament of these beasts was ever disturbed by the procreant urge. Yet in the marketplace I saw a female who was resting with her callous breastbone upon the ground suddenly raise her hind quarters and, because her shin bones were shackled with ropes, stumble on her knees to the side of her friend some distance away. I watched her settle herself at his side and nuzzle at him the dung-stained hocks of her back legs protruding from under her tail. For all that I could judge, the spirit of her companion was far withdrawn from her. This day I felt apprehensive about my consumption, and when I got back I had a fever and a bad headache. Was Palestine a poisoned country? It seemed like that I was giddily out of the windows at twilight. I was better the next morning and we walked to the Carmelite monastery that guards the traditional cave of Elijah. The cave itself under the altar was formed out of the primitive natural rock of the mountain, grey in colour. It was adorned with scraps of tawdry tinsel. A bearded Irishman showed us around. He had a clear eye, but had been a little spoilt by intercourse with so many tourists. 
He certainly had managed to put up some hideous buildings to the glory of his god. In the afternoon of the next day, we followed a dry, rocky valley down to the sea. We found that the water's margin is only a hundred yards from the foot of Carmel. We passed many caves and tombs. I looked into several of them and eventually crawled into one which contained, so I found, by lighting a match, four loculi of bodies. I sat resting there for a little. Through the tomb's opening I could see a perfect square of blue water. I wondered whether it had been used first as a habitation by a hermit, and only afterwards as a burying place. Certainly the outlook was not cheerful. Excuse me. Certainly the outlook from it was not uncheerful. There were no bones now. All was darkness and dust. My trousers were very dirty when I re-emerged, and while I was trying to brush them, my eye fell upon the body of a crushed chameleon. Its skin was as dry and parched as a dead toad skin that has been first squashed by the wheel of a wagon, and then cooked it, kicked about for a fortnight by the boots of schoolboys, and yet still retains its original shape. We now crossed the narrow strip of ground between the mountain and the sea. I thought of Napoleon marching his army along it only a little more than a hundred years ago. I felt hot and bathed my forehead in a rock pool. The rocks were very slippery and there was a quantity of white seaweed on the shore of a kind I had never seen. It resembled goat's hair. My companion found some delicate shells. Not very far out in the surf were two native fishermen, busy with casting nets. These nets were weighted, and after they had left the men's hands, they spread out so that they enclosed a wide area of water before they sank. The men walked slowly toward them until, feeling the mesh with their feet, they drew the nets up with their hands. The figure of one of the fishermen was large enough to hide a fourth part of the city of Acre, which was visible from here across the bay. To the left the sun was sinking red and round over the sea. The prospect had about it a primitive and lovely beauty. Yet, to receive life purged of sentiment, what a tough acceptance one must have. We had hardly walked a hundred yards along the beach before we passed the carcasses of two dead horses, the one a bay with distended belly, ears rigid, teeth exposed, anus gnawed by jackals, the other dead for a longer time, a black horse with half its ribs in and its tattered hide hanging loose. We now set out to walk round the headland and return to Haifa, along under Mount Carmel. By going this way I knew we would pass close to the Cave of the Prophets. It was almost dark when we reached it, however. A filthy, slum-like house was built this side of the opening of the cave. We had to cross over the most stinking middens, covered with tins and sordid refuse. When we entered the enclosure it was still light enough to see the figure of an aged man with a long white beard standing with his forehead pressed against a rock. He was obviously praying, and we waited, not liking to disturb him. I never discovered whether he was a Mohammedan, or Catholic, or Jew. It was impossible to know what whimsy was entertained by the venerable head of this old Pilgalic, who... Pilgalic? Who, dressed in a dirty robe, stood pressing his brow against a dead rock in that befouled pound. He eventually noticed us and conducted us to the cave. It was large, its ceilings and walls were all of rough rock, but its floor was paved like a church. 
Perhaps it was where Obadiah hid the prophets from the wrath of Jezebel. Christian tradition has it that Joseph off-saddled here when he was bringing his wife and child back from Egypt. It was almost dark when we came out and we experienced some difficulty in skirting along the underslopes in the direction of the lights of the city. It was half-cultivated country, without houses. At one time we found we were stumbling over graves. I had only just realised that such a succession of low hillocks indicated when we heard the most extraordinary sound. A long, low wailing that rose to a shriek and ended in a cackling laugh. Only once in my life had I heard any noise like it, and that was the howling of a hyena witch doctor outside the shutters of a mud house in Africa. Whether it came from the throat of a man furious at us for trespassing, or actually from a hyena that we disturbed, I never knew. It may well have been the howling of a hyena because I had re- uh, recognised the yowl of one of these overbold animals the night before as I lay awake cursing at invisible sandflies. flies.